the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. Please remember to subscribe to the show and leave a quick rating and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. When you look up at the night sky these days, there's a lot looking down on you. Airplanes, drones, and satellites. Thousands of satellites circle the planet, gathering the data that powers our communications, GPS, military intelligence, weather, and much more. But all those satellites are also creating space junk, an increasingly cluttered landscape across Earth's atmosphere. Today, we're talking about all the cool things that satellites can do and finding out just how crowded it's getting in space and what the impact could be on our everyday lives here on Earth. Our expert guest is Melanie Strickland, co-founder of Slingshot Aerospace. Welcome, Melanie. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We are thrilled to have you. And before we dive into what's going on in the airspace above us, between us and the other planets, please tell us a little bit about your company and how people can get a hold of you on social media. Certainly. So Slingshot empowers our customers with the right information at the right time to achieve clarity in complex environments. And we do that uh, every day by fusing data sets from satellites, aircraft, drones, and actually from the ground sensors that monitor the air and space environments in which they fly. So our North Star is to provide our customers with decision intelligence and and uh, provide that situational awareness that they need in those critical uh, times in life. And, and I'm happy to, to tell you more about myself. I'm co-founder and chief strategy officer here at Slingshot Aerospace. Uh, before starting Slingshot, I served uh, proudly in the United States Air Force for 21 years. I started out flying on a ground surveillance aircraft, and then I later moved over to the space side of the Air Force, which is now the Space Force. And there I commanded experimental spacecraft missions and then uh, went over and led the development of uh, advanced space control technologies for the DoD uh, before deciding to start Slingshot and really get after some of the problems that we faced during my career. Thank you so much for your service, Melanie. Yes, thank you. It's my honor. Can you kind of tell us who you work with, the types of companies and organizations that would reach out to you for your services? Yes. Um, so it is across Department of Defense um, and other friendly defense agencies across the globe. Uh, we also work with insurance companies, uh, first responders, and soon-to-be commercial space companies that we've partnered with. So exciting times here. Absolutely. So for those of us who don't know much about satellites other than we know that they're up there, <laughs> um, and we maybe think about satellites when we hear about satellite weather service or things like that, tell us a little bit about this technology and some of the different ways that it's being used that affect all of us we may not even realize. So we will start with GPS because I think that's the easiest one for anyone to really understand that blue dot on your phone. Um, that's run by the United States Space Force. Uh, previously the Air Force. It's a constellation of satellites on orbit, and it does far more than positioning. So even though the name is Global Positioning System, 
uh, it has another uh, part of the system that's so crucial for our everyday lives, and that's the timing of the GPS system. And our entire financial institutions run on that. Anytime you go swipe your credit card, the timing is so important uh, for that transaction to actually occur down to the microsecond uh, standard now. And so that's a very critical uh, capability that that is on orbit that we just don't even realize that we use uh, every day. Um, and I, I actually believe that some people don't even realize that the blue dot on the phone or on your TomTom or wherever you get your uh, signal and directions from is uh, enabled by that, that satellite constellation uh, that the Air Force uh, kindly provides for free to the United States and the rest of the world. So there's one. There are others, though. There are weather satellites. It's critical that we understand as you know more and more of these critical events happen that we have an up-to-date and real-time understanding of, of those weather patterns, and, and that comes from space. Um, and there's several others I'm sure we'll talk about throughout the podcast here, but those are two big ones. That's fascinating. I am one of the people who did not know that financial transactions at the ATM were impacted by satellites. So if you could maybe give us a definition, just define on a high level, what is a satellite and what's it basically built to do? Is it a computer in the sky, basically? It is. It's a computer in the sky. Um, and you can think of the different orbits around Earth as different racetracks that have different speed speeds associated with the different racetracks. And you know that the Earth orbits at a certain pace. And so the further out you go from Earth, you start to match that pace. So some satellites stay overhead, seemingly stay overhead. Um, and that's because they're so far out that that orbit matches the the, the speed of the Earth's rotation. Um, and then the others that are very, very close to, to Earth mainly have a payload that images the Earth. Or in, in, in today's world, they're starting to have broadband uh, communication on those where previously the communication satellites were way out in that other racetrack, you know, 43 thousand kilometers out or something like that. And, and, and those were your communication satellites, but the whole world is shifting into a, a smaller, uh, as you said, computer on orbit. Um, but that is precisely what it is. It's a computer. It has a payload that has a mission set associated with it, whether it's a communication satellite, an imaging satellite, um, a radar satellite, and the list goes on and on. So when an organization needs satellite for their service to be performed the way we want it to, do they rent, quote unquote, that satellite signal? Or do they actually deploy a satellite up into space? Maybe there's a certain amount of organizations that use those particular satellites. So both. There are satellite companies that deploy their own television satellites, et cetera. But there are uh, more that rent space on a on a satellite or, or rent combans or capacity, I should say, on those uh, communication satellites. So even the military has a hybrid approach to its MILSATCOM and they rent capacity, so to speak, on commercial satellites as well as build their own. And how far apart do satellites potentially have to be from each other to prevent a possible collision while they're up there. Do we know how many satellites we have right now, at least on, on the U.S. side up in space? Yes, we do. So get these numbers right. Um, it changes every single day, it seems, these it days. It can be a round number. Yeah, <laughs> approximately. <An> estimate. <laughs> yeah. 
So I believe, um, you know, whenever I left the Air Force, we were we were tracking about 1,800 operational satellites on orbit, and we're closer to 5,000 now, um, and and that number continues to exponentially grow as mega constellations and and the the satellite components get smaller and smaller, and different missions are, like I said, going from way out in in geo orbit closer to home and low Earth orbit, like Starlink, et cetera, and so. But more importantly than than I think right now, you know, with a couple of thousand or five thousand satellites on orbit, over the next five to ten years, um, it's forecasted that we're going to see an explosion of satellites. Um, no pun intended there, but the um, the number is upwards of fifty thousand. Wow. Um, and and that's just uh, very critical that we start to regulate. Uh, the space traffic management in a different way so that we can prevent those collisions. And uh, you ask how close does something uh, have to be to collide or not collide? And, um, you know, space is big, but it's it's becoming more and more uh, congested, especially in the lower Earth orbits. And so um, we need to, to keep a certain level of separation when things are flying 17,000 miles an hour around the globe. Um, you know, a, a a piece of debris, and there's over half a million pieces of debris in our Earth's orbits today, um, and that will increase as we increase the number of satellites that we launch. Um, it's just critical um, for a few reasons. I mean, with the hundreds of new satellites that are increasingly filling the orbits, there's millions of pieces of debris traveling at incredible speeds, making those threats of collision uh, a real issue. And then you take the major nations that are now really pushing for space superiority in a time where collisions could be um, seriously mistaken for an intentional act and trigger, frankly, non-reversible effects. Everyone's seen the movie Gravity. Um, and that that could be a reality if we don't start to really understand um, space traffic management and put some regulation on how we uh, monitor and and keep that separation and mitigate our debris. So how chaotic is it up there right now? I mean, what is the system in place to launch a satellite, to get licensed? Do you get a certain piece of the sky or a certain like orbit, like you were saying earlier, um, a pathway that you have to stay on? Uh, is it a license for a certain amount of time? And then what happens when that license expires, does the satellite just sort of float around after it's defunct or do you, do people bring them back? How does all that work? Yeah. So I don't have all those answers, but I do know, for example, out in geo, um, there is a slot that you apply for and you have to stay within that slot, but is that enforced? There's reason to believe that maybe it's not as enforced as we would like it to be. As far as frequencies and ITU slots, the FCC right now supports granting those licenses to operate in. And I think that you've got to have that prior to launch. And base is universal, right? It's not just over the United States where one entity can put control factors for the entire uh, space domain. And so I do think that it's got to be at the uh, global level um, engagement in order to, to really get after it. Um, I wouldn't say it's the Wild West yet, um, but as more and more uh, satellites go up and the debris continues to grow, then we may see ourselves there. So every day 
there's collision avoidance messages that go out to different satellite providers. And as time progresses, the covariance of that collision tightens. And a lot of times it doesn't end up as an issue. But again, we've got 5,000 operational satellites on orbit right now. And over the next 10 years, we're talking about 58,000. So the Department of Commerce is actually thinking of, not thinking, they're they're in the final stages of being charged to take over the space traffic management aspects from the Space Force so that the Space Force can contend with the, the um, e- evolving uh, warfighting mission that they have uh, in protecting our assets on orbit. What type of solutions are there currently in place for collection of debris up there? There are a couple of programs that are uh, prototyping capabilities. I've seen things like a net that captures debris and then pulls it down. We've seen grapplers that can capture debris and then, you know, tether back down and burn through the atmosphere. But those are all in early stages of development and few prototypes up there. But I do know that, that several institutions across the globe and here in the United States are developing capabilities to do and and test that concept of cleanup. So right now it's more so the prototypes, but there's nothing fully thought and fleshed out, basically. To my knowledge, there's not an operational capability up there that regularly cleans up debris. Mm. Interesting. You've mentioned that if, if there's a lot of confusion in the kind of satellite traffic that's orbiting the planet, that things can be misconstrued as perhaps an enemy attack or an enemy movement. And also you mentioned that our financial transactions are tied very closely to what satellites are able to do and and their accuracy. So unpack a little bit more for us what's at stake with needing to keep things clean up there and keep the satellites in the place that they need to be on the track that they need to be. Yeah, I think that as time progresses, the likelihood of collisions increase. And as one debris cloud exists, you can imagine the next set of debris that that causes, and it becomes a reaction that's called the Kessler syndrome. And that's what you saw in the movie Gravity. And that could become a reality. And so I, I think, though, I don't want to paint such a bleak image here. There are some incredible technologies out there, both from government spaces and um, and commercial spaces. As a matter of fact, we're working with both government and commercial providers that have stood up and said, let's use this data and Slingshot's platforms, bringing in multiple facets of data, multiple uh, commercial company data, multiple government sensor data looking up and, and providing a more holistic view of uh, the space domain because it's not a persistent thing. You know, when you've got uh, stationary observation platforms looking up and you think about the satellites that spin around the Earth at those high speeds, you don't have a consistent, persistent view of those objects. And so there's a lot of prediction between observations. And so we're trying to fill that gap of those observations as well as be able to compare and contrast across different sensor types that have different nomenclatures and and really normalize that data so that we can use it all on one screen. What type of global or social conversations need to start taking place? I mean, I know your mission, other organizations that are heavily involved, the government, but what can we do as everyday citizens to continue this movement of 
exploration and development of how to put things up into space that are going to help us in the long run. Yeah, I think if you have a relationship with your Congress persons and if you just advocate on behalf of that concept of getting things in place, understanding that we are so dependent upon uh, space today, whether it's um, for first responders or disaster response or just going to the bank every day, um, it's important that we as citizens understand um, our vulnerabilities and then advocate for um, our tax dollars to go uh, help support air traffic control for space, essentially. Can we talk also about jobs that exist right now in this space and potentially jobs of the future in this space for anybody that would like to get involved or research and study and be part of the solution to this problem? Yeah, I would include the entire space industry from enabling capabilities to rocket providers, to owner operators of satellites, to uh, government agencies um, and commercial companies that are that are putting up observers to understand the, the domain. And so over the next 20 years, they say that this space domain is a trillion dollar market. And most of that comes from the broadband communication side of the, the satellite industry. But I think there's plenty of jobs. And I think one of the misnomers out there is that you've got to be technical to be part of the space industry. And that's not necessarily the case. Of course, if you're doing astrodynamics or mission design or those types of things you do, but there are many, many jobs out there that support um, the facets that are that are commercializing this. I know just from what I read about Slingshot that you guys do some really innovative things using AI to basically crunch data that satellites are providing to address very practical real world problems like disaster response, emergency response, helping the insurance industry understand what maybe a a disaster means for them. So could you just talk a little bit about what you guys are doing, how you're using this technology and AI to solve really practical problems? Certainly. Uh, Well, we started the company back in 2017, so we're a fairly young company, but right off the bat in 2017 and 2018, you probably remember Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Irma, and Hurricane Harvey. Uh, Just those four storms alone combined caused more, almost $400 billion in damage. Um, And a little known fact, I think, um, is that it actually took more than 3,300 lives. And so those storms, which some people before that considered those to be like 100-year storms. They all happened in a span of 13 months. And that really illustrates the new reality for the United States. And that's where we started. Um, we teamed up with BAE Systems at that time um, and, and helped Team Rubicon um, and really tested our ability to pull in satellite data that uh, imaged the Earth on a more regular basis. And and we were pulling in satellite data in the very beginning that allowed us to see through the clouds and understand the flood inundation, the flooded roads. Then we went in and understood more uh, real-time debris assessments uh, from other types of sensors. And that allowed us to help the first responders know where to go for cleanup, help Team Rubicon know where to go for cleanup, where to stay out of the way for first responders, and then similarly help first responders know where to go and what the fastest route was around 
uh, flooded roads or debris-stricken roads uh, to save lives. So that's where we started. And since then, we've taken that capability and we've worked with a few insurance companies uh, to help them understand how to leverage that type of technology as well and to really get families back on their feet faster and and do so without having to send their agents out in those debris-stricken or weather-stricken environments. During those events, it's important to understand that a lot of the communications are not at that time. Now it's time to leverage those direct pass to comms uh, back up on the satellite. So both from an operational perspective and a situational awareness perspective, um, it's important to leverage those assets. So from the imagery perspective for operations or for the situational awareness and then for operations to be able to leverage the high throughputs. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. What we're doing right now, is a satellite likely involved in our conversation right now? Likely. Can we go into that though? I mean, you mentioned ATMs, you mentioned first responders, which is so, so, so important. Um, what other everyday use cases do we have for satellites that people might not know that we use like on a daily basis? Um, I mean, I'm assuming Wi-Fi with broadband, that's all the time, right? Like that's a satellite that's sending signals and making everything work the way it's supposed to by the microsecond, as you mentioned early on in a conversation where, you know, microseconds are so important. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, any anything that's enabled by communication, telemedicine today is a big thing, you know, in this COVID world. And so any key support efforts in disseminated locations to include our folks that are out at the uh, tactical edge defending our freedom today. Yeah, I had read somewhere when I was researching you that one of the things that your company can help do, and forgive me for not being technical, but... Um, if there are ground forces in a hostile area, that there's a way to sort of make sure that communication isn't being intercepted and that that's an area that your technology can help with. Is that right? Yeah, it's not necessarily a capability that prevents jamming or anything like that. But moreover, it's a software framework that allows us to process and analyze all that sensor data out at the edge where those folks are disconnected from high-speed bandwidth or, or those types of things. So for example, Slingshot Edge integrates across uh, small UAS uh, systems that are uh, imaging post-storm or the battlefield. And our capability is able to seamlessly analyze what either the warfighter or the first responder is looking for immediately upon the stream of, of data hitting their handheld. So in the past, you've had to take a disk off or a chip off of the drone and download it and a human had to go in and say, look for flooded roads or intersections of debris or change detection for infrastructure. And now with Slingshot Edge, um, those real-time machine learning models allow us to detect and extract that change in near real-time in disconnected environments. Melanie, can we chat about um, the intersection of security and privacy with satellites? 
clearly organizations that are renting or even have a satellite up in space here on earth we talk about authentication and things to you know protect people from intercepting anything that you don't want intercepted but in space does it translate or is there another layer of security and privacy that we need to be cognizant of or know about so i think we've got some protections in place if you're talking about imagery from space so that's governed to a certain uh, resolution. And so from space, we can't see people, uh, we can't track people and do those types of things that people at one point were kind of worried about big brother in the sky. But as far as, you know, worrying about privacy, I've seen a decline in rhetoric around that. I'm not up to speed with where that is necessarily, but I do want to hit the other thing that you said. So security for the computers that are flying around on orbit and making sure that those are not being tampered with. And, and because at one point space was a sanctuary, right. And it was just this peaceful place that we put things up and, and leveraged. And now it's become contested and people across the world have sometimes nefarious intent to take down either a football game to make a statement, they can now hack into, you know, these satellites and, and, and do things like that. And so precisely there are uh, concerns there, but I think that the industry has over the last five years really um, stepped up the game on making sure that they've got encryption on board and have made cyber protection a top priority in the design phase of these satellites. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's amazing because for so many of these technologies that Vanessa and I meet with guests and discuss, it seems like the technologies advance really, really fast. And then the sort of the legal framework that surrounds them and the, and the ramifications in terms of things like privacy have to kind of catch up. It's, mm -hmm. it's hard to, <laughs> to advance at the same pace that you're providing a regulatory and a protective framework around yeah. the advancement. So and it becomes really interesting because again, space is not a domain where your satellite, unless you're way out at geo and you're providing communications or television or something like that to a very specific area over the earth, most satellites uh, travel over different countries and uh, regulatory governing of resolution and what they can and cannot image uh, not everyone abides by the rules that we have in the United States. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking too, because I mean, we have somebody with malicious intent potentially goes onto our website and really wants to cause a ruckus. But if somebody really, really wanted to take something down globally per se, you go after the satellite, right? I mean, that's just a really interesting conversation to have of like what what's being done and how do you prevent that from happening? Because if there's just like this, oh, you shouldn't do this. This is kind of just a handshake type of situation where we're not going to do anything to interfere with satellites. But then you have that one person that really wants to. Yeah. <laughs> settle I, think, in. I think another way to do that is with disaggregation. So in the past, you've seen multi-million or billion dollar uh, assets as a big monolithic satellite that took years and years and years to develop. And if you can take that capability and start to disaggregate that and make a more resilient multi-satellite or mega-satellite constellation, that's one way uh, to do it. So that if one aspect or one satellite goes down, the entire network or the entire enabling capability doesn't go with it. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And and that ties into something else I read, which is that the technology is getting smaller. Mm -hmm. Is there 
sort of a intersection that's happening between drone technology and satellite technology in terms of size and capabilities? Yeah, I think just processing capability across the board, whether that's on a, a drone, a smartphone, or just the, the massive hypercompute that you get from a cloud-enabled uh, infrastructure has um, you know lessened the need for all the processing to be done on board. And then with high bandwidth uh, capabilities and, and laser comms, you can get the data that once was, um, you know, was trickling down from these satellites, you get a, a faster rate and, and can get more down faster from these satellites. Then you can leverage the high power compute in the, the uh, web enabled or cloud enabled infrastructures to get answers faster. Uh, but certainly uh, Moore's law and, and everything that the, the smartphone uh, era has brought uh, has found its way to orbit, mm. which which also um, brings me to the launch aspects. I mean, uh, making launch pricing uh, transparent. Uh, there are certain companies that have come along like SpaceX and Rocket Lab and, and others who have really made uh, pricing uh, uh, transparent and, and affordable for even universities to put more than one satellite uh, a decade up. And that's been transformational in and really getting more capability on orbit. I'd love to dive into how you got into this industry and your path as a woman in STEM. Tell us a little bit about that. When you started out, did you always have an interest in what was uh, flying around in space above us and, and these flying computers, or was it kind of a meandering path? Yeah, so ever since I can remember, I was a small kid growing up in a small West Texas town. I had grand dreams of doing something that would impact the the world one day, but I had always been infatuated with space and aircraft as early as I can remember. I was infatuated with, you know, the night sky. And fortunately there in West Texas, there's not a whole lot to do, but uh, the skies are usually pretty clear and you can see the Milky Way at night. Um, and I remember as a child, my parents taking my sister and I out to near Big Bend uh, National Park where the McDonald's Observatory is. Uh, near Fort Davis, Texas. And and it was the year, I think it was around 1986. I can't remember specifically, but Haley's Comet was passing by at that time. And I just thought it was so incredible that, okay, we're going to get to see this comet and this comet's not going to come around again in our lifetimes that I could imagine. I mean, 75 years or something like that, that it would pass by again. And so um, it was those moments in life that just really tied me to to space and always wanted to do something with my life in space. Of course, every kid wants to be an astronaut. I certainly did. But as I learned more and more, um, my desire to go to orbit uh, lessened and my desire to really do something with what is going on on orbit increased. I was fortunate enough to join the Air Force and, and get the nexus of my two loves done at an early age. So got to fly in the back of a surveillance aircraft and travel the world and do really incredible things that impacted, you know, missions. And uh, then I got to, you know, cross over after I finished up going to school nights and weekends to the space side. And uh, how fortunate was I to get to be in rapid prototyping of next generation capabilities and operating those residual capabilities was just a dream come true. And now some of my heroes are on our board. I mean, those types of people that I really looked up to as a child, like Susan Helms is on our advisory board. She's a five-time astronaut and 
has for a long time held the longest spacewalk record. I don't know if she still holds it because a lot of activity has happened over the last year, but how fortunate I feel. Mm-hmm. What a fascinating career. Agree. And nights and weekends um, to get the job done and, and, and fulfill another part of you. Congratulations to you because that does take commitment and effort and, and a love and passions. It does. It does. And I, I, I didn't do it by myself. That's for sure. Had a support group all the way. Well, let's talk about that. What does your support group look like? I'm assuming your family is a strong supporter, but what other amazing people did you have along the way? Uh, A lot of times we hear of women that had other women pulling them up and holding them accountable. So let's talk about that. Yeah. In the Air Force, unfortunately, I didn't have that many women in, in the career fields that I was in, and that's increased dramatically over the past few years as well. Matter of fact, I am so excited about the Space Force and that it is really the first uh, service that that is geared from the ground up for women, and they're really taking that seriously. So that's just amazing. But yeah, I had mentors from my very first supervisor who encouraged me to reach my potential, go to school every morning, wake up and look in the mirror and tell myself that I was happy with myself, that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And he reminded me of that. And that stuck with me. And I still like wake up in the morning and look at myself. And even if I'm not feeling so good, tell myself like, I'm a good person and I am happy with myself. Um, And it makes a difference for the day. Um, And then later on my journey, I had several folks that always taught me certain things. One thing that has stuck with me, and we use this principle in Slingshot, is a bias for action, integrity, surrounding yourself with people that are smarter and better than you. Fill your gaps. Don't have pride. Be vulnerable. Fill those gaps Mm -hmm. because that's the way we progress, and we believe that, and that's part of our culture. Absolutely. That is all such great advice for any company, no matter what industry you're in. I think the things you just ticked off are key ingredients to companies that really form cohesive teams and that are able to innovate because they can trust each other. That's right. Trust and respect is core to that. And if you've got integrity, and we, we say this all the time, it's our number one core value, then trust and respect follows. So if you are doing what's right when no one else is looking and you're treating each other with dignity and respect, then we're unstoppable. Amen. I love that. What kinds of cool things are on the horizon in the satellite technology space? No pun intended. What do you see coming that you're really excited about or that, that our listeners would think is, wow, that's an amazing technology that's going on up there that we don't even think about. Real time internet capability, anywhere in the world in underserved populations across this globe is going to be transformational to our health, to our societal well-being. And those things are also going to help us get through some of these climate change inflictions that we will inevitably endure over the next few years here. Um, so those technologies are, are pretty cool. And another one is taking that edge capability that I discussed and getting that on orbit so that these spacecraft become more cognitive and provide more real-time information, not just real-time data. When you say edge, can you put that in more layman's terms? Edge to me and to our team means closest to the sensor uh, processing capability, taking that machine learning, taking that AI and getting it as close to the sensor or 
the receive station as possible to even shrink the latency further, provide decision intelligence as a first step. Alrighty, well, let's jump into our lightning round. These are some questions that we asked just to get to know our guests better on a personal level. And I will start out by asking you, Melanie, how do you define success? I define success as being fulfilled, uh, having a vision and seeing that vision come to fruition, even if it's not holistically accomplished, having pieces of that accomplished. And then most of all, uh, impacting, impacting lives, making people's lives uh, better, whether it's inside your, your company or uh, in your customer base. What are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? Don't change, stay confident, and seek advice. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? That's a hard one for me because I <laughs> love what I'm doing. But I think um, I think I would like to uh, give back. And so I think I would love to be able to take some of these capabilities uh, once we get more of this vision accomplished with Slingshot and, and take it to underserved populations and children that may not have ever uh, thought that they could build a satellite and get that thing on orbit and really feel that sense of accomplishment of something way larger than themselves in a team atmosphere that I would love to do that. So be a teacher and a team builder for mm. underserved populations. What resources do you wish existed for women in tech STEM or looking to get into STEM related fields? I think more uh, and more of these coding online coding schools and, um, and so you don't necessarily have to go to a, a higher level uh, education to get some of these more basic uh, technologies that are foundational to our way of life today. I wish that we had more of that. Uh, I wish that women uh, were, weren't as hesitant to come into the space field. And so I do wish that we had, like we've got these coding camps and we've got Coursera and those types of things. I wish we had that for space. Okay. A, a silly question. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Survival school. We ate some, some pretty gnarly things. I was supposed to eat a squirrel. Didn't do that, but I did eat some rabbits. So that, but I'm pretty food averse. So, um, I really don't eat that that many weird things. Another fun question. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Uh, Jodie Foster. Melody, what's the thing about you that people would be surprised to know? Well, in, in present day, they'd be surprised to know probably that I uh, grew up playing golf, started at age seven, and love it. I just don't take the time to do it anymore. So most people probably would not even know that that I play golf. What's a funny mistake you made when you were starting out and the story behind it? Oh, yeah, I've got one for that one. So when we first started Slingshot, um, I was still in the Air Force and uh, we were invited by the then advisor to the president to the, the for space to the White House um, to have a chat. And so I brought my co-founder, David, with me and we ended up staying outside of town at at Fort Meade on, on the base there. And as we were transiting, he had his laptop up. I was driving. We were in a deep, deep conversation about the company, just really saving world, you know, saving the world. And all of a sudden I realized that 
we were driving up to a gate and it wasn't a, a gate that we should be driving up to. It was the headquarters of the NSA. And, you know, typically you can like turn around and, you know, before you get up to the gate, but they were not having it. They pulled us in the whole nine yards. Cops came, surrounded the vehicle, told David to put his computer away. Oh, and no. uh, <laughs> and this is his first experience with a, with a base. I had been there before. Thankfully, um, they took our information. <laughs> Under better circumstances, hopefully. <laughs> better circumstances, and uh, boy, did they! Boy, was it a scene! But uh, we got out of there pretty quickly, and and uh, after they ran um, our credentials, and I, I I was on a previous list there, so we were good to go. Most people would have ended up being there for hours, but that was David's first experience on a on a base. <laughs> Um, if you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global, what would it be? Uh, space sustainability. What myth about women in the STEM field would you like to dispel? I think many women think that you've got to be super technical um, to be in STEM. And really, you just have to have a passion for it. I admittedly was not that great at math. And I run a space company and um, had a successful career working with astrodynamics and those things that seem pretty hard to the outside folks, but you can do it. How have you surprised yourself in your career journey? I think every day is a surprise for me. I mean, the success that this team has had, cultivating this team or the teams that you know I had in, in the Air Force, I think it's not something that I just expect. It's something that you cultivate and you work at, but I just enamored with the success that the team's have had that have worked with. And of course, we've had failures too. Very uh, surprised sometimes at the resilience of the team and the loyalty of the teams. And I think that success is, is surprising to me. Failures lead to bigger successes. So right. fa failure is not a bad word on this show. <laughs> right. right. And team too, right? Exactly. Like so many of our guests have said, having that right team yes. is makes all the difference. So it does you for assembling the right team. It takes work as well. So it hasn't been perfect from the beginning and we'll, we'll continue to struggle in certain areas, but we know what our core values are and we know what our culture needs to be. And we identified a little culture slip in the very beginning, thankfully. And we were able to course correct that and really put emphasis on our culture so that it did not define itself, that we defined it with what we wanted it to well, be. Well, and that takes vulnerability and accountability, you know, to say, oh, oops, nope, we're going to mm -hmm. rectify this. And now you're a better company for it. So all right. Last one, fill in okay. the blank, blank, like a girl lead. Melanie, this has been so interesting. I've learned a lot today. Really kudos to you for starting a successful space company and making such a powerful and important impact in the world. Uh, we really appreciate your time and have enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you again. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF and visit our website at www.wegetrealaf.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. 
We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.